1: Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass
0: shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing.
0: Welcome back to part two of our crossover episode with Bob Motter from the Defence Diaries podcast. Before we jump back into that conversation, we wanted to say thanks to all of you who have sent in listener questions for our bonus episodes, which you can now find in your podcast feed on a Tuesday now that season four is up and crackalackin'. We also wanted to say a hearty thanks to all those wonderful Patreon supporters who have got on board the Stop the Killing team, making it possible for us to bring you Season 4. And if you want to throw your support behind the podcast, just head over to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing or in some exciting news, just a hand. You can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts, which if you're listening on Apple right now, you'll see a little subscribe button on the show page. To listen, ad free and have early access, hit the link. But if you want bonus content and videos of the shows, then Patreon is still the place for you. As always, you can check out the links in the show notes. There's even a little link to our YouTube content. And with all that admin out of the way, let's jump back to where we left off in the last episode, where Bob, Catherine and I were unpicking the differences between serial killers and mass shooters. When we're talking about the actual crime itself, the planning and the preparation and the organization of these crimes, tell me a bit about what you see as being similarities. Catherine, let's start with you on this one, because I know we've talked about it so many times. There's a lot of planning and prep that goes into a mass shooting.
2: There is. And oftentimes this is, as we know, a singular incident, right? So the planning and preparation is almost grandiose because it doesn't become commonplace. It's the one-time thing. So they decide they're going to do this, then they plan and prepare. And that planning and preparation, as we know, is things like Buying the right ammunition and the right weapons, but also the real clothes to put on so they can pretend they're badass, even though they're not. Bulletproof vest and so they over, like they overdress for the event. You know, they're wearing a tux and they're going to a football game to make sure that they play the part and have the right equipment. And oftentimes they surveil their locations and they draw maps and write letters. They give things away. They do a tremendous amount of what we call leakage, where they'll tell other people they're going to do this. They tell, who do they tell? We know they tell their spouses, their domestic partners, their friends and family. And if they're students, uh, schoolmates, 90% plus of the schoolmates have heard leakage specifically about the type of incident that's going to occur. So, there's a lot of, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to post pictures about it, and I'm going to leave drop hints and stuff. And that buys into their story that others made them do this. Others could have prevented. That's completely different, Bob, than a serial killer when it comes to planning and preparation.
3: I would agree with that. Like Gacy specifically, I'm going to give you one example. So with his last victim, Rob Peace, incredibly strapping, handsome young man. Oh
2: yeah. I remember that case. Great,
3: Yeah. Great looking kid. Captain of the football team,
2: quarterback,
3: right. all that stuff. And, you know, so the way that Gacy operated, and this is a perfect example of what he did. So that particular day that Rob Peast went missing, he had driven to the Nissan pharmacy in Displains, which was owned by a couple of brothers, the Torf brothers. Gacy, Been there. Yeah. Gacy goes in at around 7 p.m. Because what Gacy did in the real world, you know, and in the world that everybody knew him in, he was a contractor and he focused his business on remodeling pharmacies. That was his bread and butter. So he goes in, he spots Rob Peast immediately. Rob is stocking shelves. He immediately goes to Larry Torf. And instead of talking about the job, he starts talking within earshot of Rob Peast about how he's hiring for summer jobs. Now this is December 11th in the middle of a brutal winter. And Gacy goes to Larry Torf and says, look, you know, yeah, I'm I'm looking for guys for my summer jobs. I pay five to seven an hour. Okay. So Rob's ears perk up. He hears it. Gacy continues to talk about it for a bit, all in the orbit of Rob so that Rob hears him.
2: Manipulate, 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 manipulate. Like
3: the, the way this thing played out. So This is at seven o'clock. So Gacy finishes his conversation with Larry Torf and leaves. However, he leaves what he refers to as his Bible, which is his day planner. Every appointment that he has is in there. So he leaves it intentionally. So Gacy lived 15 minutes away from the pharmacy. Remember, he leaves at about 7.15, goes back to his house, smokes a joint, pops a Valium, and listens to his uh, answering machine. That, hey, John, it's Larry Torf. if you forgot your appointment book here. Again, Gacy's 15 minutes away. So the pharmacy closes at nine, okay? Gacy waits until quarter to nine, takes a different vehicle, goes back to go pick up his appointment book, knowing that Rob Peast is going to be getting off work at nine o'clock. So what he doesn't know is that Rob Peace's mother's birthday was that particular day and that she had come to pick her son up to come back home and celebrate that night. And so Gacy comes back in, gets the appointment book from Larry Torf, sees that Rob's mother, like two ships passing in the night, she's coming in while Rob is following Gacy out to say, and he says to his mother, mom, I got to go talk to this guy, this contractor about a summer job. I'll be right back. That's the last time that he's ever seen. So every element of what happened to Rob Peast was planned out by Gacy, not necessarily ahead of time, like what we're talking about with mass shooters, because even the, 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 just assembling the weapons that they're going to use requires quite a bit of preparation, you know, but like Gacy was preparing, but over the course of years, it was a craft that he honed in terms of the way he would ensnare people.
2: And I, th- I think this is where the victim is the convenient victim. The target is acquired. I think that's what I'm hearing, Bob. The preparation is there all the time for a serial killer, but the target is acquired potentially almost impulsively.
3: Exactly. And Gacy was like 50-50 on that. 50% of the victims were victims of convenience and others, like the ones that worked for him, he had designs on. But like, I'd say that for the most part, most serial killers that we're talking about are exactly what you're talking about. They are a victim of, of circumstance, you know, just them being at the wrong place at the right time for the killer. So Gacy was a little bit different, which is what, you know, made him so hard to... Kind of put a finger on exactly what he was you know he, he was he was terrifying this is one thing that he was i always fancy myself as somebody who can sniff out like a psychopath in a minute just by the way somebody looks and the way they're carrying themselves through a crowd like i'll tell my wife i'm like there's there's a guy that guy's a predator you know sometimes i'll even snap a pick like I'm that confident that I can sniff people out just in terms of what they are fundamentally. Gacy, I don't know.
0: Do you know like, what I think like, is interesting about know. that, Bob, is I think that you can sniff out a wrong one, but I wonder if you can sniff out a psychopath because right. that's the difference. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are designed to mix in with the population and project this image of charm. Again, I'll go back to what my psychologist said said on in the con was that they have two emotions that they go between anger and charm right. and if they can't get away with charm then they have to switch their toolbox what's in there anger what i've come to realize is that a psychopath is somebody that you've got to think of them as almost like a completely different species right whereas i think that's one of the differences that i see between the mass shooters and the serial killers when you're trying to spot them is this controlled hiding in plain sight versus the leakage that comes out of a mass shooter. So,
3: I mean, the one thing that has changed is think about the last five years in terms of how narcissists and narcissism has been thrust to the forefront. So now <laughs> it becomes easier yes. for us. Right. It, it becomes might, easier so to see
2: because we go, oh, so that's that trait. Exactly.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, So then the challenge becomes how do we differentiate that every narcissist we encounter is not a right. serial, killer? serial killer? You know right. what I mean? Because not every narcissist is a serial killer, but every serial killer is a narcissist.
2: When you talk about a wolf in sheep's clothing, they're hiding in plain sight. Yeah, I worked at counterintelligence as an FBI agent before I got dragged into the mass shooter world. And one of the things that you work on is undercover work and you get trained in undercover work. And one of the primary things that they teach you when they start to teach you how to do undercover work is because you're going to be somebody else that you aren't, is that you stick to the truth as much as you can because that way you don't have to remember the lies, right? And so, your lies are very small. So, one of the things that's interesting about a serial killer is that they have a tendency to live within their own community and work within their own community, And now maybe I'm off base in that. I know we have traveler serial killers through the rails and through truckers, but excluding the travelers, Gacy's a great example of somebody who who hid in plain sight in his own community. And so much of his persona was in fact who he was. Those weren't lies he had to cover up as opposed to somebody who is a mass shooter. The act of mass shooting and becoming that mass shooter is none of that person. None of that person at all. So they're two completely kind of different persons. The mass shooter is a totally different personality where a serial killer, I think, lives in hides in plain sight in their own community.
3: I agree completely with that. And that's what I was saying. Like That is what made Gacy so terrifying to me.
2: That's why it's hard hard to find them. Really hard to find them. Because most of what they're living is their actual, their truth, Mm. their Their life, their their lifestyle, the people around them who know them. They're charming. They're fun.
3: Right. And that personality aspect of it was authentic. Like it it was not a forced personality switch from killer Gacy to businessman friend Gacy.
1: So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality.
4: people who run the cons.
1: So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper.
4: It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.
0: Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to StubForge.com. Start creating today and see how StubForge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit StubForge.com and start making tickets today. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about your mastermind subject there, Bob, which is the Gacy case. So for people that don't know what the Gacy case is, can you give us the Gacy 101, like a helicopter view of the case before we dig deeper?
3: Yeah. So uh, John Wayne Gacy is an American serial killer who operated, as far as we know, from 1972 through 1978. His most common moniker is the killer clown because John Wayne Gacy enjoyed clowning, which means that he would get in full clown garb, you know, from head to toe, clown makeup, and go and entertain children. You know, there's a bit of a a misnomer out there that he would kill when he was in his clown outfit. That's not the case. He did not do that. So John Wayne Gacy is, as far as we know, is credited with killing 33 young men. His victims were all young men ranging in age from 14, we believe, is his youngest, all the way up to 24, we believe, is his oldest victim. However, there are still five victims 43 years later that are still unidentified. And the reason for that is because John Wayne Gacy, when he would kill somebody, would then dispose of 27 of his victims in the crawl space of his home, which... If you guys in the UK don't have crawl spaces, it's kind of like a sub-basement that had like a soil floor. So he would dispose of the bodies in his crawl space until that was filled up, at which point he started dumping bodies in the Displains River. Two were additionally buried on the property that were not in the crawl space. So, so that's kind of the nutshell of, of Gacy. He was arrested in 1978. He was convicted in 1980. He was put to death by lethal injection, May 10th of 1994.
0: And of course, just to recap, the reason that you have a connection to this case is your 21st birthday present from your dad, who was the defense attorney for Gacy. Is that right? Have I got that
3: correct? Correct. Correct. So Gacy had two trial attorneys, one, Sam Amaranti. The reason that Sam had gotten that case is that he was actually doing a lot of Gacy's civil work. So anytime he had contract disputes come up, Sam was the attorney that he was using. So originally when Gacy is arrested, now he had he had been married twice, Gacy had, once back in Waterloo, Iowa, when he was arrested for sodomy back in nineteen sixty eight. And sodomy does not describe exactly what he did with that young man. It was much more akin to what he did to all his victims in terms of torture rape and that type of thing but she divorced him immediately upon his arrest he then got out after receiving a 10-year sentence on that sodomy charge which if you do some simple math that takes you to 1978 which if he had done his full 10 years he wouldn't have been operating but he ended up getting out after 18 months of a 10-year sentence
2: that's eighteen months. Let's just refresh that for those who didn't hear that because they were driving and let them put their car back on the road. yeah, ten years he was sentenced to. He did eighteen months,
3: yeah, so much for truth and sentencing there, huh? yeah, so he he got out very, very early. He shouldn't have when he got out in Waterloo, he then sought to have his parole shifted over to Illinois, which Illinois agreed to. He then bought the house. He got married a second time to a woman named Carol Hoff. From 72 to 76, Carol Hoff, her two daughters, her mother, and John Wayne Gacy's mother all lived in that house on Somerdale. So for that period from 1972 to 1976, he had three adult women and two stepdaughters that all lived in that house with him while he was doing what he was doing. So um,
0: That is mind-blowing. How big was that house? Small.
3: not that big <laughs> not, not wow. very
2: big shows you these killers operate with people right around them who don't see what's going on
3: yeah and, and so gacy had bought that house in 72 he was in a relationship with carol he wasn't married to her yet he had killed what <clears throat> they say is his was his first victim i happen to think that he had killed back in waterloo before he was arrested that's something that no one is going to convince me otherwise but his first victim was a young man named timothy mccoy who he snatched from the greyhound bus station as that was one of his primary hunting grounds early on because he would find these kids that were traveling typically from iowa to minnesota and that particular line would stop for a layover in chicago which would be six to eight hours these kids would drift off out of the bus station.
2: Across from the Daily Center where I used to work, exactly. I'd look down at the Greyhound station, and you just see people roaming around waiting for their connections.
3: Yep. yep, and and these were you know wide-eyed kids in the big city for the first time walking around. Gacy would spot them immediately, and you know he'd say, "Hey, you know you need a lift? You want to go get a bite? Whatever the case may be, you'd get them in the cars." And remember, 1972, like hitchhiking was a thing like it's my contention that the day that gacy was arrested in 1978 december was the day that hitchhiking died in the united states because it became such a national case for various reasons Casey was just one of those stories that that you know took on a life of its own and i know that you guys abhor the fact that they seem to glamorize these guys but you know that's exactly what happened with him and kind of the way this story went is Amaranti was sitting in his office he got a call from Gacy on the 20th of December said i have to tell you something and allegedly he proceeds to confess because he had been under surveillance for 10 days by the Desplaines police 24/7 surveillance so Gacy was feeling the heat not knowing that they really didn't have anything on him because they had searched the house once on December 13th they didn't find anything relating to Rob Peace so he goes to Sam's office drinks a half a bottle of Crown Royal proceeds to allegedly spills his guts to his lawyer sam then the way that the story goes is that sam had tried to get him committed into a hospital that morning because sam knew if what he's saying is true he's mentally ill like i need to get him into a facility and like he was trying to convince gacy to go gacy's like i have shit to do like i'm not going anywhere gacy ends up leaving of course he was being tailed 24 7. So you had Mike Albrecht and Dave Hackmeister, who were two of the cops that were tailing him, were sitting <laughs> out. Yeah, that's
2: names out of my past. That's yeah, so funny I, to hear Albrecht's name and others. I, oh love, I, love,
3: I love Mike Albrecht so much. Great guy. Mike was the guy who broke the story for me, really. So, like, but those guys were sitting out there. Gacy leaves in a rush, gets in his car, and like Albrecht and, and Hackmeister are sitting there. And the quote is that Sam says, if He's getting away from you guys. You need to shoot his tires out, which if you're a criminal defense attorney is absolutely breaking privilege. Like he just admitted to the cops that his client had done it without saying the words. He's a serial killer. I have long thoughts on what actually happened there, but like my father was a seasoned, seasoned felony criminal defense attorney and had just gone into private practice when this case broke. Sam came on the news. My dad's like, holy shit, I know him. I should call him to see if he needs help. So he messages Sam. Sam immediately calls him and says, yeah, I I need the help on the case. So my father came in after Gacy was arrested and after he gave five confessions (laughs) to the police while he was represented by counsel, which is something that I dig very deeply into in the podcast as well. So. That's kind of the nutshell of the Gacy case. Is that thorough enough?
0: Yeah. I mean, he sounds like a right piece of beep.
3: Yeah. Bad guy.
0: The worst Very of bad humanity bad right there. Now, you've brought along a couple of clips for us, I which have. is an amazing starting point to really discuss those differences in the behavior. So, Catherine, you know, normally you like to test me on these podcasts, but I'm going to be testing you and seeing what you can pull out in terms of interesting behaviors of concern that we can be watching out for or what have you. So tell us about this first clip that you've brought along. Lay the table for us, Bob. What are we listening to?
3: Okay. So what we're listening to is after Gacy was arrested and because there was knowledge that he had given five separate confessions. Now in these confessions, he did not confess to killing all 33 victims. It wasn't even close to that gacy during these five confessions basically copped killing five of these young men but it was enough for both of his attorneys at that point to realize that this was going to have to be an insanity defense because he had confessed to the crimes so that basically took any kind of concept of trying to beat the case or cases Under the concept that he didn't do it or he wasn't guilty of the crimes off the table because he had made the admissions. So that left them with what most criminal defense attorneys refer to as the defense of last resort, which is an insanity defense, because it's very, very difficult to win an insanity defense, because basically you're having to convince 12 jurors that somebody who did all these monstrous deeds somehow was not responsible for it, that they couldn't control themselves. And that is a very tough sell to anybody. People just are not buying it, especially you know the planning that went in and the deception in terms of avoiding being caught just fly in the face in terms of common sense of him not having an understanding of what he was doing. Now, the reality is that my father is going in these tapes and he's trying to crawl into the mind of John Wayne Gacy so that he has a better understanding when going to trial on how to convince the jury that this man had a compulsion that he simply could not control. So the first clip is going to be a scenario where you're going to hear actually more of my father going at Gacy, trying to get an understanding of how Gacy is claiming that he doesn't remember anything now. He doesn't remember giving the statements. He doesn't remember saying anything to the cops during the first three days that he was in custody. And my father saying, well, John, that doesn't make any sense to me because I've read the confessions. You drew a map, John. You 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 told the cops where the bodies were in the crawl space, John. Try to make that make sense to me. My father trying to get to the truth of, of what was going on in Gacy's mind. And all the while, Gacy, him being the narcissist that he is, thinking he's the smartest guy in the room, he always thought that he was going to walk on these things. Always. Initially, in one of the parts of the clips is is this, this portion of the interrogation between Mike Albrecht and John Wayne Gacy, where Gacy slips into this alternate persona that he claims that he had, this man named Jack Hanley. So, I, I think with that, like you'll have a pretty good idea of what what we're listening to.
2: Let me add one thing as the outside observer of defense counsel. This is a brilliant interviewing technique that Bob's dad uses because you can see so many people want to say, "Oh, insanity, Oh, he's crazy." He couldn't have known what he was doing. But we know that when it comes to an insanity plea, As the attorney is interviewing here, he's beginning to think, how can I piece this together? He has to show and acknowledge the fact that this person did these things, and that maybe he was, so to speak, in his right mind at the moment he might have executed some act that was horrific, but that overall, in his overall personality, he had this major mental flaw. And that's a very impossible fine line to try to walk. And you can hear. Bob's dad trying to pull out the details that he'll need in order to get that kind of a defense.
1: During that period of time when the floor was up, do you recall bringing anybody back to your house? No. recall burying anybody down there? No. I don't recall. recall anything at all oh. about a body being down there. You remember, you draw a map for them, show them where the bodies are, and then you tell them you can't remember. and I, It just drives me up a wall. One of the statements when you drew the map, John, was taken on December 22nd at 5.15 p.m. That's after you were arraigned and after you had been in custody.
4: At what time in the morning?
1: 5.15 p.m. On December 22nd. Oh, this was on a Friday. And it was no. 29 hours after you had been entrusted. You had no access to drugs or alcohol, and you made the statement to him, and you drew a map. Well, as I told you before,
4: I don't even remember the first three days of being here.
1: Reporting officer then asked Casey if he could explain where the bodies were in the crawl space. He tried to describe it and was having a difficult time of telling us exactly where the bodies were buried and asked if he could draw us a diagram. All right, at any rate, you draw, draw a diagram. Then after that, you tensed up and made reference to Jack, saying that he must have drawn it. Do you remember this statement?
4: No. I don't remember giving him any statements without Sam being present. You know, when they when they came in, that you say that was taken in the twenty nine hundred hour. They came in with the understanding that they were going to take me to the cemetery to see my dad. It's not that I recall it. Because I had still asked, and they told me, you know, when they arrested me, I asked them I wanted to go see my dad, and they said, yeah, we'll we'll take you later on. Because even on the morning when Sam was with me, no, I just wanted to go out there because I, I would get peace of mind and contentment out of it, nothing more. Did you Not recall at that time though. that you had told Sam everything the night before? No, I I
1: knew was I had that to That on your say. mind? Did you know what you what you had told him? The subject?
4: Matter? No. When I left Sam that morning, and I was I was heading towards the gas station. I knew I had a lot of things to
1: do. But you didn't recall the contents and the subject no. matter of the
4: conversation? No. But what was running through my mind is that like I was running out of time, and I don't know why.
1: You know, Running out of time. Yeah, because when I, now, when I
4: got home, when I got to my house, I took three volumes. At noontime, I took three more volumes. Okay? Uh, at the time, just before I went to the hospital, I took seven more valiums. That's a total of 13 values, 10 milligram value. So I don't remember. I don't remember. I was in a a state of complete confusion. What, do you want me to smoke a giant? I got a grass. You got grass?
1: right there. Jesus Christ, don't tell me that kind of thing, will you?
2: Catherine, what do you make of that clip? You know, I can hear your dad, Bob, Pushing him to see if he can break. When you do an interview with somebody who is a narcissist, or as people would say, oh, he's a psychopath. In order to get them to confess, you praise them. You know, you're constantly like patting them on the head and telling them how wonderful they are, because they always just want to talk about themselves. What I hear here is I hear his dad doing the opposite, seeing what will he say when he's frustrated? Because it's clear that you see no remorse. It's just explanation. It's just, well, your dad is just not smart enough to understand. The person who is the killer is the smartest person in the room. Just ask him. And so he's just explaining, no, look, I didn't say those things. I was taking all these drugs. And that's my favorite line about it. I just needed peace of mind and comfort. And I think, yeah, that's what your 33 victims needed, you slime bag. But your dad is pushing him to see is he really the person that he says he is or is he just this games player, this Jack a uh, figment of his imagination because it's convenient or is it really a psychological issue?
3: Right. Yeah. And the reason that I picked that particular clip is because the nature of that particular interview goes on for hours and hours and hours. And my father will get him to start talking about details of one of the crimes where Gacy will say, I didn't remember something. But then when my father gets him talking, he'll slip up and he'll give a
2: detail. Right. Because he gets frustrated, right? He gets, you get him flustered and then they acknowledge something. Right. And that's what your dad was clearly trying to do. Exactly. And
3: there's a, a portion of that interview where my father says to him, John, if you've formulated a theory as to what our defense is going to be for you, <laughs> you're trying to answer questions, thinking that you're helping yourself and us getting that defense out there, you're wrong. You're not helping yourself. And so it's like my father never soft pedaled with Gacy. Like he he went mm-hmm. at him very hard all the way through. So if Gacy had not gone in there and started just spilling his guts, it would have been a, a massively different case. And then after Gacy does that, he then changes stream completely and says, oh, well, I don't remember doing it. You heard him where he's saying, I was on 130 milligrams of Valium. I don't remember a damn thing about any of those those confessions at all. You know, But you hear in there where he does this thing after he draws the map, and I'm envisioning Gacy saying like – maybe having a moment of clarity and being like, oh my God, but like, what did I just do? I just drew out this map. And that's when he does the eye flutter, you know, sitting there for 30 seconds. And he's like, oh, I, I didn't, who drew that map? It wasn't, it must've been Jack. Jack knows all the details. That that was the shit case was pulling. So, I mean, the man, for as monstrous as he was, he was not an idiot. He was a clever, clever
2: person. People attribute Serial killers is they're they're masterminds. They're brilliant. They're not brilliant masterminds, but they're not stupid. And plus, they have all the pieces to the puzzle so they can lay them out when they want to. Like The police didn't have any of that information, and he just throws up all this information. My theory about that is that he's thinking, well, now that it's my story, I want to brag about it, and I want to tell it my way. Yeah, midstream, he thinks better of it.
3: So Rob Peace goes missing the 11th of December, the 12th. They're knocking on the door. Casey's not home at first. They go back later in the afternoon. Casey's home. He's like, my uncle's in the hospital sick and dying. Cousin Zach, you know, he says, I need to talk to you. He's like, I'm dead serious here. Like, we need you in the station to, to talk to you. He says, yeah, 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 I'll be there. He's like, don't you have any respect for the dead? And, you know, so like it, it's all happening contemporaneously. They're, like they're unearthing bodies from the crawl space at his house while they're interviewing him, you know, this isn't an, an interview that took place after they unearthed 27 bodies from the crawl space. They don't know how many bodies it is because these are mass graves. It's like a soup of, of bones. Ultimately at the end of the day, when you're trying to figure out what Gacy is, is confessing to, you will see with the second clip, the five that he confessed to, he was very careful in terms of talking about who he had killed to only give confessions to statements where he was basically putting the onus and the blame on the victim and saying that he was essentially acting in self-defense. Gacy went in with a plan. So that's what you're going to be hearing. Gacy's going to be talking to my father about what we believe was his third known victim, John Bukovich. He had left because
4: he had gotten into it with his dad and his dad took an apartment away from that's why he wasn't going home. His dad had kicked him out of the house told him that it was no good and all that shit and wanted to get rid of him. You know, just get out. I said, well, somebody's going to have to pay for the carpet. He charged the carpeting to me, you know, and uh, then his father took the apartment back from him to rent it out, and then he was going to not pay for the carpeting, which was $325. He had a check coming of, I believe, $125 to $150, somewhere in there. He wanted his check he said, I like, can get the carpeting back from his dad. I said, like, hell. I ain't going to go argue with your dad. So then he was—he got into an argument. That's what the argument was. We were fucking around, arguing back and forth. And uh, I talked him into putting the handcuffs on. Once he got the handcuffs on, I pinned it down. And I told him, I said, now well, you might as well settle down and get it straight for once and for all. Because I am not going to give him a check. I said, I'm going to shit. What the hell you do? Uh, and then he said, Let me up, let me up. I said, I ain't you up until I get done explaining it. I said, You know, goddamn well, you owe me for the carpeting, and you're not getting your money until I get mine. And then he told me that if I didn't let him up, or when I if I would let him up, he'd kill me, he threaten to kill me. He said, If I lose, I'll kill you. He said, Because well, he had nothing to lose. I said, Well, if, that, if that's the way you think this is, then it's either you or me. I am assuming from that point forward, I don't remember if I killed him or I just left him on the floor. There. I do know that he was
1: dead. When do you remember
4: him being dead? Around 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning when he came out of my bed. He was still laying on the living room floor. Did he have his clothes on? Yep. Were his hands still handcuffed? Yep. In the back of him or in front of him? In the back
1: When he was dressed?
4: Yeah. How was he? I found? don't know. <clears throat> I don't know Never. if they found him with his clothes on or off. I don't know if I took his clothes off to bury him or buried him with his clothes on. How was he killed? He was, he was not sexually See, John and I had only gotten into it one time. It was oral compilation. That's all we ever gotten into? Once. He didn't like it. He didn't want part of it. Tell me what, what you did when you woke up and you found him dead. Put him on a canvas. Then I dragged him from the house, right out in the yard, out to the garage.
1: During the day or night?
4: During the afternoon.
1: Buried him in the garage.
4: I dragged him into the garage and then... Uh, the section in the back
2: garage, I had to dig the hole deeper. He's so matter-of-fact, isn't he? It's
0: I just like had Kalis. to dig the hole deeper. Yeah. Very callous. Yeah. It's like he's taking out the trash. Yeah. Like- yeah, there's
2: no remorse. His conversation about the carpet has the same tone as the conversation about dragging a body to the garage. Yeah.
3: Exactly, John Bukovich, this particular victim, worked for Gacy for about six months. And John Bukovich's father, Marco, owned a, an apartment building and he was going to give John one of the apartments. John had gone to Gacy and said, Look, I want to refurbish the apartment. Can we put some carpeting in there? And they did. So this is for the apartment that John Bukovich was just getting ready to move into. Okay. So he was really excited. 19 year old kid got his own spot you know, and, and Gacy is saying, I want, and and in the meantime, John is owed his pay for the week of working with John. So John goes to John Butkovich goes to John Gacy says, I want my check. And John Gacy's like, no, I'm not giving you your check. You owe me 325 bucks for the carpeting that we put in the apartment. He's like, no, man, that's my dad's apartment. And and Gacy says, I, I'm not dealing with your father. That's your problem. You go get the money from your dad and then, you know, I'll pay you your money. So they have this fight and it gets physical initially. Like with this particular situation, this is one of the ones where Gacy's, again, shifting the blame. Like you heard Gacy say, and I know it was hard to hear in there, but he claims that Bukovic claimed that he was going to kill him. When I get out of these cuffs, I'm going to kill right. you.
0: Yeah. Kill or be you know? killed
3: kill or be killed. And these are the things that Gacy was confessing to. So he's already operating.
0: Yeah. It's a whole
2: narrative he's weaving to fit into his story. Exactly. It's fascinating. it, It seems very logical while he's telling it until you think about what he's actually saying. Like He doesn't remember any details, but he remembers exact details. But when it's convenient then he says, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was on drugs. I have no idea what's going on. The other thing I noticed was that his facts don't actually work. Like he'll say things that maybe work in his A to B to C to D, but that wouldn't work in any of ours. Like the fact that I talked him into putting the handcuffs on.
0: The handcuffs line. And let me tell
2: you. And then he says, the handcuffs are on behind his back. Now, having put handcuffs on a lot of people, It's very hard for men to have handcuffs behind their backs anyway, anyway, because of their shoulder construction so that he handcuffed himself behind, uh, okay, no. And then he was talking and he was threatening. If you're a guy and you're handcuffed behind and you're laying on the floor, you're in pain. It's just all falls apart when you put any logic to any of it. Yeah.
3: And, you know, and Gacy's physically, his body's on top of him. And at that point, Gacy was like 240.
2: And his yeah. clothes were on, but his clothes weren't on. But his clothes were on, but his clothes weren't on.
3: Right. With the five that you know he confessed to, it was always the same type of narrative.
2: You know, Bob, when we talk about mass killings, people say, oh, these killers are all mental. And they just throw that word out there as if that's the explanation for everybody. And right. my theory is that... That gives everybody else a whole pass because, well, I'm not mentally ill. My daughter is not mentally ill. My friend is not mentally ill. So the only people who are going to commit these acts are people who are mentally ill. Well, then that clears everybody I know. And it's a convenient excuse, but it's very inaccurate because mental health is not a predictive factor. Um,
3: It discredits those that actually are.
2: One of the things that I was thinking, Bob, is maybe just your thought on this. Based on our conversations about mass shooters and our discussions about serial killers, which one do you think is harder to find ahead of time before uh, they kill again or kill? Right question.
3: I think that you have to look at it in a case-by-case situation because there, there's always this part of me that is like, Carol Hoff had to have known. She smelled the first victim. She allowed for Gacy to say it was a dead animal down there. There's flies coming up through the dryer vent. Clearly something's rotting down there. Her husband is up and out in the garage at three, four o'clock in the morning all the time. You know, I mean, like there were signs there. There's this willful blindness aspect to what she was doing that, I have a hard time reconciling with her not having some Mm -hmm. kind of knowledge. That's
2: a truth default theory that you're going to believe what people tell you, even when you know it's probably not true. You're going to default to whatever truth they put out on the table because you want to believe them. Exactly.
3: Exactly. That's absolutely what it is. It's really a tough question. To to answer because it like there's just so many factors involved.
2: So what do you think, Sarah? Who do you think is easier or harder to find ahead of time? When you were saying Bob about the
0: wife having smelt things, the thing that I automatically thought was, oh, actually there is leakage involved, and we talk about leakage of information a lot in Stop the Killing, and I hadn't really clicked that there was leakage so much with with serial a serial killers. killer. But it seems to me that that leakage is seen very much by a really finite amount of people, perhaps. I mean, you're talking about people that are smelling something in a house. So I feel like those people that might see it are the least likely to report it again because maybe they're under that person's control. You know, he's not going to have somebody
2: that's close to them without being able to have a measure of control over them. I would know it if he did that. Right, Bob, you're a defense counsel. How many times do you hear this? As a prosecutor, I used to hear moms in the courtroom say to me all the time, I know he couldn't have done that. He's not that kind of kid.
3: Well, Gacy's mom said that. She just couldn't believe that her, oh, sweet, yeah. her sweet little boy did that. I forgot that. You know, but like I, I can tell you definitively, like I, I don't know about y'all's marriages, but like if I was ghosting <laughs> at three or four in the morning on the daily, my wife would be like where the hell are you? What are you doing? (laughs) You know, like my wife would be all over it, You know,
2: but it also, uh, don't you think that's interesting. It kind of speaks to the dynamics of the relationships that he had and whether or not he was kind of controlling the narrative on their relationship. He certainly
3: was with Carol. There's, there's no question. So I don't know. What do you think, Catherine, who is easier to detect?
2: I think that a serial killer Certainly gives off signs, but I think that it's easier for them to cover it up from a lot of people because they have the luxury of time in between their crimes. So if they can get away with a crime and nobody sees those particular things, they can disappear and move to another town or change their location where they pick up people and stuff like that. So I think for mass shooters, we know that they plan one big grandiose event. And because of that, there are a lot more physical signs, 30 to 40% of them plan to commit suicide. So they also do a lot of the behaviors that we see for people on a path suicidality, you know, situation where they give away their things, they write letters, they apologize to people, they stop talking to people, they start talking to people. So they change their behavior. So I think those changes in behaviors, those all that atypical pattern, not just buying guns and shooting more. If you have a gun, but you buy more guns right? suddenly, or you go to the range once a week, you start going a bunch of times a week. We know that mass shooters show up at the scenes with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of rounds of ammunition pretty routinely. That's that's more than you carry when you go to the range. So I think their signs are there. I think people are afraid to see them and say something about them. It is so classic, see something, say something. So we just have to keep our eyes and ears open to look to see if we can find a way to help stop the killing.
0: Well, Bob, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. Where can people
2: find Defence Diaries? In all things Bob. Yeah. yeah. Well, number
3: one, thank you guys for having me. I beyond enjoyed this. I could honestly talk to both of you for hours and hours <laughs> on end. Just for the record, you guys are forcing me to stop. Uh, no, but I, I love I loved <laughs> doing this. So we're everywhere you can find your pods,
0: Apple, Spotify, it's Defense Diaries. And we will, of course, be putting links to all things Bob Motta in the podcast notes. So with that, thank you so much for joining us.
2: and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore.
3: I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wuderick.
1: And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network.